We're going to start with confession. Um, it's Lent. Um, Ash Wednesday was this past Wednesday. Maybe you went to a service somewhere and participated in that humbling moment. And uh, maybe you even thought uh, to join in with Christians around the globe in terms of confession. So I will start with confession this morning. Um, uh, when I was growing up, when I was growing up, I was always in this Christmas play. It was called The Living Christmas Trees. I don't know if you've ever heard of the living Christmas trees. It was over at Grace Polaris, and they had these trees, and you would go up in them and sing. It was, the tree was alive, alive with song, the spirit of Christmas. It was alive, the living Christmas trees. Uh, and uh, I was often in it, as was my whole family. Um, I'm actually pretty good at putting on makeup because of this. Um, that's not the actually confession, though. The, the confession is um, one time I was in the children's choir, and we had particular songs that we were singing as the children's choir. That's how that works. And so uh, we were actually downtown at Battelle Hall. It was so fun. We were downtown at Battelle Hall, and we, were, we had this sort of green room we were supposed to wait in, and you know, we would you know, play with toys and do whatever else. And then when it was our cue, we would go up, and we would sing our song and just bask in the glow of all that is Christmas, and it was, you know, it was just a really wonderful time. Uh, one of those performances, somebody brought in a television, and um, so here's my confession: um, I actually missed my cue altogether. I actually missed my entire part because I was so engrossed in this 13-inch television on which I was watching Designing Women. <laughs> I was so engrossed in what those zany women were doing in their design firm that I completely missed the fact that everyone had left, they had sung two songs, and then come back. I was completely unaware of the time, completely unaware. Like, I, I am sometimes guilty of that. Like, I just can kind of get disconnected and not really realize what time it is. That, that was actually a pattern when I was younger. There was a time when I, I missed... 75% of a baseball practice, um, which this is heart-wrenching because baseball was just like my favorite thing. Have you ever had the ball hit the bat just right and use the sound? Anyway, it, it was such one of my favorite things and I missed 75% of the practice because I was watching the neighbor kid play Pac-Man. <laughs> I didn't even really like the neighbor kid that much. I was just so engrossed in his Pac-Man game that I didn't realize what time it was. Completely missed it. Uh, that, that's actually sort of carried into my adult life, to be completely honest. I, uh, you ever had that when you wake up and you have to kind of figure out, like, where am I? Like, maybe you're in a hotel or you're, you forgot that you were at a family reunion. You're like, where am I? I, I always have to ask, when am I? Like, when am I? What day is it? Do I, do I have everything I need for today? I, I'm always sort of at a loss. But here's the other thing. There is this other way the pendulum swings for me where I can actually get obsessed with time. I can be completely disconnected and sort of generally unaware of what day it is, actually. And on the other hand, I can get obsessed with seconds, right? Um, running was a part of my life. I might run 26.2 miles and actually care that I was a couple of seconds slower. Like there was a time where I was really mad about two seconds, 
in running a marathon. Can you imagine being that obsessed with time? Or there's other times where I, where I, might, I might accept invitations to, to multiple things or say yes to multiple engagements and just realize, well, the timing might not work perfectly, but I think I can do it. And just start to cram everything in and just sort of start to have this sense where I can manage it if I just hold tightly enough, if I just cram it just so. Maybe if I hit all the lights, I'll make it. I have these two sort of warring components of myself when it comes to time. I'm either completely unaware of it or I'm so obsessed with it as to be frantic about it. Maybe you can, maybe you can share in that. The, those moments where you piled so many things together that you can't possibly get them all done. Where you, where you put too much in. Here's the problem. The problem is that both of those habits of mine are not just less than ideal. They're a fundamental denial of the fact that I am human. When I'm completely disconnected from time, when I'm completely unaware of the way time has passed, maybe engrossed in a Pac-Man game, or maybe just another episode of Designing when that happens... When that happens, I'm completely losing one aspect of my humanity. I was born in time. I was created a creature embedded in time. You can see it all through the scriptures. You can see it maybe if you look at Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes writer, the teacher there is often obsessing about time and the way that it causes such ache for human beings. He says, here's the, here's the thing. I am fundamentally a creature in time. Here's what he says in chapter three. After he went through that very famous passage that the birds turned into quite a nice song about there's a time for everything, right? There's a, there's a time for everything under the sun. Right after that, he says this in verses 10 and 11. I have seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Uh, other passage or other ways of translating it is he has made everything suitable for its time. He has time in mind for each thing. He, he, has, he has coupled time and his creatures and his creation. He has also said eternity in the human heart. Um, other translations of that phrase say, we can remember the past and we dream of the future. And actually, that's a very unique thing in creation. Perhaps one thing that sets us apart, the privilege of being human. Elephants have a heck of a memory, but what can they do about the future? Here, for human beings, we are embedded in time. We were meant for a time. There's a time for everything, including us, right? And we have the, the time that we carry with us in memory, and we have future fears that affect our, our current status. Time is chasing us around. So when I'm completely unaware of what day it is, while it sounds like a decent vacation, I'm also missing out on a piece of what it means to be human. It's all throughout the scriptures. Genesis 1, we're created on the sixth day. The pattern of time fully established there is evening, there is morning, the first, second, 
third, fourth, fifth, sixth days. There's I'm in time. Genesis 3. What does God say will be true now that human beings have broken the covenant with God? He says, now what's true is that you were made from the dust and you will return to the dust. You are in time. You are temporal. Actually, this is what Abraham says to God himself in Genesis chapter 18. When Abraham is bold enough to speak to God, he says, listen, I know I am but dust. I know I'm returning to dust, but, but could I be so bold as to say this? Right? And, and, and this is all throughout. The, the psalmists are aware of time. How long have we waited, Lord? How much longer will we wait? God, you remember our frame that we are, that we are framed in by time. You have numbered our days. It is a fundamental aspect of being human that we are in time. In fact, it's no wonder that St. Benedict actually wanted to redeem time so, um, so, so forcefully. He, he, he came up with what's called the rule of St. Benedict. It basically just means a pattern of living, right? Pray at these times. Take meals at this time. Work alongside your brothers and sisters at this time of day. And one of the things that he said to keep ever before us, it's in the rule of St. Benedict, which actually I think you should read. I think you would love it. The rule of St. Benedict says, Memento Mori. Keep death ever before your eyes. Always remember that you are in time. I think we'll get a sense of why we need to do that a little bit later. But just to kind of preview it, it's about humility. Remember you are a creature. Remember there is a creator. Memento mori. Remember time. It's now. But of course, there's the opposite problem, right? Not just being completely detached from time, but being obsessed with it, conquering it, imagining yourself a ruler of time, squeezing in so many things that if the stoplights don't hit just right, your stress levels begin to peak, right? Have you been there? I have. You know what's really bad? It's actually my, my worst moments in terms of hurry are while I'm traveling, you're supposed to be at ease, and I'm in such a rush. It matters to me that it took six hours and three minutes to get there when last time we made it in five hours and 56 minutes, right? Why am I in such a hurry? I want to master time. I want to be able to prop myself up as one who is in charge, fully in charge. I, I read a verse about that one one time. James, James chapter 4 says this to those who are like me, trying to master time, trying to imagine themselves the master of the time. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on a business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will. Instead, you ought to defer to the one who truly is the master of time. You need to remember who you are, where you are, and when you are. It's a part of being human, recognizing your humanity 
even your limitations as a human, we tend to overestimate our capacity to manage history. We, we imagine that if I do this, everything will be all right. If I just add two plus two, I will get four. And then we apply it to parenting or we apply it to, to our, our, our work and we think this business deal is gonna go just exactly right because I did the formula the way it ought to be done. I'm in charge. We imagine ourselves in charge. We overestimate our capacity to manage history. And I think hurry is one of those symptoms. It's one of those ways that we imagine that we can rule over all of it. Maybe even to the point where we can sort of be in two places at once. Or at least have an impact on two spaces at once. There's a way in which hurry is hubris. A Greek word for pride. Hurry is pride. It's an elevation of myself. That I can be everywhere all at once and all things to all people all the time. It's an elevation of self. But here's the problem. To try to be more than human is dehumanizing. To try to be more than human is dehumanizing. Think about the people who do try to master all things. You could take some egregious examples from history and note how they start to dismiss the humanity of others right away as long as it props up their own say, their own power over history. But we don't have to look that far into history. We could look at our own lives and see those moments, like Alicia was just talking about, where we're at our worst as a human being when we're hurrying, where all of a sudden my child becomes secondary. Oh, my. Can we talk about a confession? My child became secondary to a time on the clock? Bless me. I mean, that's, that's dehuman. It's less than human. It's less than human. In fact, that's exactly the way it's described in Scripture. What is it that Adam and Eve do in the garden? They try to grasp at something that is not theirs. Why is it not theirs? Because they're human. What does God say? He says, look, they have become like one of us. Clearly, what he's saying is they have tried to elevate themselves. They have, they have tried to burst through the ceiling of what it means to be human and tried to grasp onto instead what is God's alone. And all kinds of relationships break because of it. They become less than human. The same problem is seen at the Tower of Babel. These people trying to create an empire, trying to be masters of the universe, trying to make themselves eternal. They say they want a name for themselves. It's really like saying, I want my, I want my uh, place in history to be so firmly established that I never am diminished. I last forever. And again, what are they grasping at? They're, they're trying to elevate themselves beyond humanity. Yes, hurry is, is hubris. But I have a sneaking suspicion it's also uh, a lack of the sense of self, a lack of understanding of the, 
the, the preciousness with which God looks upon you. I think hurry can be hubris, but I think it can be also self-harm in, in, the, in a sense of saying, I am not enough yet. I am not enough yet, therefore I have to do more. Imagine that maybe we could earn God's love. Or, or imagining that if we could just hit all the marks, maybe be everywhere all the time for all people, maybe then we could be worthy. I think there's these two sides of the coin with hurry. On the one hand, it's a sort of pride. On the other hand, it's a self-loathing. It's a, it's a fear. It's a, it's a scrambling to fill this gaping hole. To say, but if I could just accomplish one more, uh, if I had seven meetings today rather than just six, if I stayed up a little later, if I, if I did more. The first problem with hurry is a denial of what it means to be human. This is a denial of the goodness of God. Our God is good. Here we are chasing after the wind and instead he wants to offer us rest. It's actually the scripture that the book that we're launching into starts with. Come to me if you're weary. Don't chase after the wind. Don't try to fill that hole somewhere else. You can rest here. Right? His grace is sufficient, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. He said to me, my, my grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness. God knows full well that you are limited. It actually says this in Psalm 103, that God knows your limitations. He actually designed you with limitations so that his grace could be made perfect, his power made perfect, so that you would see his grace is sufficient. Paul goes on, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Right? Peter had to learn the very same lesson. We were just talking about the Last Supper with communion. Peter, right before the Last Supper begins, refuses to let Jesus wash his feet. Can we see the dual nature of, of, of Peter's problem rearing its ugly head? He wants to show how strong he is. He's not even willing to admit he might possibly fail. He says, if everybody else falls away, I won't. But on the other hand, he just is, he, he's just so deeply aware of his shortcomings that he can hardly look Jesus in the face about it. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, listen, unless I wash your feet, you can have no part with me. Be willing, be willing to admit your limitations, your deep need for God. Time will do that. Time will show us just how limited we are as time wears us down. As we wear time, what do I mean by that? We wear time, we carry with us the things that happened to us along the way the moments we couldn't manage, the places where it became quite obvious that we were never masters of the universe. Time wears on us and we wear time. But that's all right. There's one we can give ourselves over to. Augustine describes him this way in his confessions. Augustine's confessions is a, a memoir about his 
moment of realization that he wasn't ever going to be enough, but God loved him fully anyway. Augustine, this, this towering intellect, this man who had been climbing the scales to where emperors knew his name, Augustine confesses that he could never be enough, but he says, it's all right. It's all right. Everything past and future is created and set in motion by the one who is always present. There is one I can give my time over to. There's one I can rest in. There's one I don't have to hurry because he has already accomplished it all. What does Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. You can rest because the work is done, right? Because when the time fully came, the one who put time into motion did what was necessary. Galatians chapter four, verses four through seven. But when the time, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born into time, taking on the limitations we see in Philippians chapter two, taking on the limitations of what it means to be human. Not, uh, not, not believing that his status as co-equal with God was something to use to his own advantage, but instead setting that aside, coming into time and taking it on for us and finishing it. This is one we can give ourselves over to. In fact, this is one we, we hear from Paul in chapter 4 says that what he did, he redeems us, those who are under the law, that, that we might receive adoption to sonship because you are his sons. I actually want to sort of give a time out here. There is a way our modern reading, we look at this, we say sons, this patriarchy. But actually, chapter 3 had said there is no male or female. There is no Greek or Jew. What is Paul saying? That the time has fully come for the patriarchy to be torn down, for, for everyone to have access to the inheritance. The hard truth in the ancient world is that only a certain type of person could inherit anything from their family. So the rights that the women in the church were receiving were co-equal. The time had come for breaking down that wall. There's one who is master of that time. And now, ever since that time, everything is different. He said he was going to be the light of the world, and he has been. Yes, we need to rest in this. Don't pass it by. Don't keep rushing past the moment of our salvation, the moment of God's presence. Augustine said he is always present. Again, Paul in 2 Corinthians, this time in chapter 6, says, For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. C.S. Lewis is famous for saying it this way. We, we have this obsession with the past. We have all these worries for the future, but it's only now that is the moment that can touch eternity. Now can touch eternity. Because God is present. The one who set eternity in our hearts is present why am I rushing past it? A student of Paul's writes later, today, today if you hear his voice, do all that you can to enter into his rest. 
actually maybe set aside your schedule. Let him blow it up. It wasn't good enough anyway. But he is good enough and redeems all time, even bringing about healing for the time that we wear in our bodies. Enter into his rest. Remain in him. Abide in him. This is what it says in John. Remain in me as I also remain in you. You can't do it on your own. No branch can bear fruit by itself. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much rushing about you do, it must remain in the vine. There is this slowness to it, this abiding, this remaining. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Fruit that takes an annoying amount of time to come to fruition. Love is slow. This is what Alicia draws our attention to this morning. Love is slow. The fruits of the Spirit take time. But God is omnipresent and He's eternal. There is no time or place that He is not. We have all of eternity for him to bring about the goodness that he has set out to bring about in us. Philippians chapter one, he's faithful and good to complete a good work in you. Thank God we have all of eternity to explore that, to lean into that, to rest in that. Yes, he's everywhere. It doesn't wax or wane. The only thing that waxes and wanes is our attention. Our awareness waxes and wanes as we rush about, as we chase after the wind, as we love things in the wrong order. We miss it. There's a blind man outside of Jericho who didn't miss it. Jesus passed by. He said, son of David, have mercy on me. He didn't miss the moment. He knew that was exactly what that time was for, that, that Jesus passed by for him, and he didn't miss it. His attention and his awareness, perhaps heightened by his blindness, made him aware of who it was that was coming so near, and he didn't miss his chance, fully aware of what was happening on the roads of Jericho that afternoon. This, this attention, this awareness, it's the beginning of devotion. It's the beginning of worship to, to have your attention grabbed by the one who's worthy of our attention. Think about the way that happened in Asbury. You guys following the story? The seminary in Asbury? They stopped classes. They missed meals. They gave their time over to the presence of God over a week. And they became aware of God's presence and then responded appropriately in prayer and worship. But people who are in a rush don't have that kind of time to enter into the goodness of the moment. Who has time to set aside a week like that? 
I used to teach teachers in the room. You're thinking, wow, the curriculum was mangled, <laughs> mangled. I had to cut so many things out. Thank God. Thank God. Love it in the right order. Because this, this, this spirit of God that, that, they drew, that, they, that, they, that they gave their attention over to is the one that can lead us into all truth anyway. Study has its place. It's essential to love God with our minds, but not as a replacement for devotion to the presence of God. No, sir. John 16, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Grab a hold of that cloak. Don't chase after anything else when this is right in front of us. As the church, we need to be attuned to the living spirit's conducting of our days, telling us, no, you need to stop for your good. You need to stop for your neighbor's good to, to give us a strong sense of when to press on and when to yield. The spirit wishes to conduct our days. He has them numbered. Let us give ourselves over to it. He knows what we need. I think about this moment often. When Jesus' friend Lazarus died, they thought he was late. They wondered why he wouldn't hurry up. They wanted him to hurry up, get there. He said, if you had been here, the two sisters both said, if you had been here, this would not have happened. If you had just hurried. And then he says something different to each of them. You ever notice that? They both make the same accusation. You were late. And he says something different to them. He knows what they need. You know what Mary needed? She needed Jesus to sit down and weep with her. With her. And he did. He sat and wept with Mary, even though he knew just a few moments away was a miracle about to happen when the time was right. He was in no hurry. All the fruits of the Spirit fully on display in Jesus. All of them fully ripe. The time coming to its fullness in him, the spirits of, the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All these things which are slow in coming were fully on display in Jesus and he wants, he will make them true of us. He will. He will not be deterred. And he's very patient in the time being. He will make them true of us. But we grade against it. The book that we're launching into says it this way in the first uh, section of the book. It says, both sin and busyness have the same effect. They cut off your connection to God, to other people, and to even your own soul. We're very aware of this, the problem of sin, but actually we sometimes think busyness is the solution. Here, after all these years, it turns out it's the problem. Grasping at something that wasn't ours to have. 
believing something of ourselves that could never be true. We could never be masters of our universe. Or failing to believe something about God that is true, that he is good, and the work is finished. Busyness blinds us to those things. We fail to be attentive enough to those truths. But Jesus never failed to be attentive. He was interruptible, imminently interruptible, painstakingly slow in some of his work, going off to rest when he knew he needed to. I think about Mark chapter 5. Jesus has come across the Sea of Galilee where he had just healed this demoniac, sent, uh, sent the legion sprawling. And he comes back across the Sea of Galilee. And when he gets there, the man greets him and says, my, my child is dying, my daughter is dying. And I know you can help me, please help me. So Jesus is following along, and in the chaos of the moments, a woman who had been bleeding for years, how long would she have to wait? She had been waiting so long. She reaches out and grabs his cloak, and she's healed. And Jesus stops to look her in the eye. You even think, like, what's even so necessary about stopping and looking her in the eye? She already was healed. Jesus wants to do more than heal her. He wants to restore her. He's calling attention to the restoration that has taken place so that she could be brought back into the fold, back into the synagogue, right? And he's honoring her humanity. He won't let anything dehumanize her. Not even hurry. He won't let it dehumanize her. He pauses. He stops. He looks her in the eye. You're a child of mine. You have access to all the inheritance, all of it. It's yours. But then Jesus does go on. He has another child to attend to. And he gets there, and they're already weeping and wailing. They think it's too late. They don't know how time is in his hands, I guess. It's fully in his hands. There was no hurry because he's in charge. And he says, why are you crying? She's only sleeping. She's human and she needed to rest. We all need to rest. And then he says what I think is maybe the love, this most lovely phrase. He says, little girl, get up. Talitha kum is what it is in the Aramaic. Little girl, get up. It's time. It's time to get up. Jesus wasn't hurried. He was interruptible. And because he was interruptible, he took the time to look everyone in the eye, to, to honor their humanity, and not let anything hurry him. He's faithful and good. Even if we're chasing after the wind, he's chasing after us. He will not arrive too late. He's already here. We live in the fullness of time. We live in the fullness of time when he has already demonstrated the full extent of his love. Let us pay attention to it. 
Let us be interruptible enough. Let us be humble enough. Let us trust him enough to rest, to not be in such a hurry. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are thankful for the way that you are in charge of time, that you redeem time, that you are good enough to be patient enough to bring the fruit out of our lives that's been a long time coming. We're so thankful the way that you are interruptible on our behalf. We're so thankful for the way that you are willing to set aside everything else for us, to meet us where we were and when we were. Lord, help us follow into your rhythms, live into your rhythms. They are the most humanizing rhythms, and yet we miss them. Help us to pay attention and to rest with you a while, to sit with you a while. Stop chasing after the wind and sit instead with the Spirit of God. Thank you for your patience. We pray in your son's name, amen.